How's everyone doing this morning? Yeah? Good. I haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to do it again. And this is what I love about the transparency. People have said that they've come through our doors of our church. Your church is authentic. Your church is different. Your church has a giant elf. <laughs> Listen, the world doesn't need people that put on a good face in the name of Jesus. They need authenticity. They need realness. And I say it tongue-in-cheek, not that, but I say this tongue-in-cheek, but when we ask how people are doing, you can actually say exactly how you're doing. And if anyone, everyone says it at the same time, you can be honest and people around you won't even hear you because we're all talking at the same time. You know? So if you're tired, if you're encouraged, if you're here under duress, you know, if you're just full right now because of the worship time, you can say however you are and uh, God sees your honesty and we all speak in truth. So how are you doing this morning? Yes. Wonderful. Good. You see how that works? You're being honest with each other. It's good to have you all with us today. Um, uh, yeah, some of you may not remember who I am because I don't think I've actually spoken here at Bridge for upwards of like a month at this point. I was looking at the calendar and I said, wow, um, we were supposed to speak a few weeks ago and then we made some changes that were necessary, which was good. Uh, so um, Pastor Rob got to speak on the birth of Jesus and, and I didn't. And now I get to speak on what he was going to speak on today. And I was, I'm actually encouraged to speak on this today. Um, but I'm going to open in a word of prayer this morning. And I'm going to invite you to take a journey with me today. Uh, it's not a journey outside of this building. It's a journey into the depths of our hearts as we listen to the Holy Spirit speak to us and through us. Um, I believe that God wants to use this scripture today to speak to us. Um, I know that personally because as I've walked through this this week and I have read and reread and taken notes and listened to the Lord, um, I have been incredibly challenged uh, on what he's going to talk to us today about. And I feel in a way, um, unbeknownst to our worship leader and our, and our team, but that song that we just sang kind of summarizes the entire focus of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So um, can I just encourage you just to take a moment and bow your heads as we just pray this morning, uh, whether you're here in person, whether you're online, just join us this morning and uh, let's just lift up the name of Jesus as we come to him in prayer. And Father, we come before you today and I thank you for your love. I thank you for the consistency and the never changing consistency, never changing, unending love that you give us. Not because we're worthy, but because you are holy and you are good. Jesus, thank you for the gift that you gave us by coming and living and loving, dying. And God, thank you for the power of your spirit that raised him to life so that we could be alive today. I pray as we open up your word today that the words that we look at in scripture... God, that these words would not just be for a moment. They wouldn't just be words on a screen, but they really are, as we see in your scripture, inspired from you, living and active, to transform us as we meditate on them. So God, may our hearts be open to that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So yes, we are in Bible engagement. If you've been following with us, Bible engagement. Today's Bible engagement project is volume 7, session 4. Volume 7, Session 4. Uh, we have that here, so if you need to take a picture of that or if you need to write it down so you know where you are, our small groups are going to be looking at Volume Session, Session 4 this whole week as we talk about the last of the sessions in this volume. 
You may remember we looked at volume one when we kicked off Bible engagement. We went to volume two, and then we jumped to volume seven because volume seven is all about who? Jesus, right. Jesus is always the answer, someone told me in the huddle this morning. So the answer is Jesus. Volume seven, we're talking about Jesus around the Christmas season. There is no better time for us to be focused on the love of Christ and the encounter and what it means to encounter Jesus um, each and every day. Our faith verse that we are looking at over this month, uh, you've heard the last two weeks, have, it comes from John chapter 14, verse 6. And Jesus is saying, it says, Jesus told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. He says, no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, can we just reflect on this just for a moment? The Bible is not a smorgasbord. It is not a buffet where we look at the chapters and the books in the scriptures that we like and we put them on our plate and we digest them and then we ignore the ones we don't. It's all or nothing in God's word. It's all or nothing in God's word. And I say this because this is such an important scripture. It is a controversial scripture when people look at the life of Jesus, when people look at who Jesus is is who he proclaimed to be. You can find many people recognize the existence of Jesus, that he lived, that he was here, he's present, that he was even a good teacher or a rabbi. But Jesus is very clear through the Gospels as he continues to walk through that ministry. He continues to point more and more to the truth, specifically that he is not just a teacher, He is not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet or a good person. He is, in fact, God's son. And he makes a statement like this in John 14, 6 that says, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Now, I've heard people say, and they get really upset with this sometimes, this is so exclusive, This is so exclusive. Jesus is the only way. Maybe you've known people over the years that tell you, world religions all are doing the same thing. We're all climbing the mountain. We're just doing it from different sides of the mountain. We'll eventually get to the top. Jesus takes that and he throws the whole thing out. And he says, the only way to God is through me. The only way to God. Doesn't that sound exclusive? Doesn't that sound like there's only one way? Yes, it sounds like there's one way. And let me ask you, from a human perspective, okay, do you want someone to tell you there's only one way to do something? Even if it's not your way, do you like that? How many of you really like it when someone tells you you got to do it their way and no other way? How many people really like that? There is not one hand that's gone up here in this room. Why? Because we don't want to hear that there's a way to do something and it may not be the way you want to do it. It's my way or the highway, as some people like to say. That's not what Jesus is saying, but he's giving something very exclusive here. And he's saying, I am the way. And we can look at it and say it's exclusive, but it's also completely inclusive. Because nowhere in scripture does this passage or did this scripture unfold in any way that excludes people groups, race, gender, age, economic ability, economic status or situation, nothing in the world is excluded from coming to God through Jesus. No one. 
That's the beauty of it. You come from what your background is, who you believe, what you did, your history, if you thought you were good, if you thought you were bad, if you're tall, if you're short, if you play instruments, if you don't play instruments, if you're great at athletics, if you can't even throw a ball. It doesn't matter. God doesn't limit. He shows no preference. He looks at all of us and say, the whole world can hear this message. Jesus is the way. And if you come to Jesus, you get to God. Isn't that an awesome scripture? Think about that. Now, it's great for those that say, I agree with it. That's really great, right? For those of you that don't, or people that are watching that going, I don't agree with that. This is where the tension is. Because Jesus isn't just a great teacher. He went to a place and he put himself in a place where he defined himself very clearly. He either is or he is not who he say he is, who he says he is. So we're starting here. This is a wonderful scripture to talk about, especially over Christmas, because it brings another level of credibility, significance to the birth. That a teacher wasn't born. A preacher wasn't born. A religious zealot wasn't born. Emmanuel is with us, says in Isaiah 7. And his name is Emmanuel because it means God is with us now. Significance. And I'm excited that that's our faith verse. So that's a little bit of the passage. It's a little bit of the background of why we have that. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to look at the third piece of Bible engagement. Pastor Rob looked at encountering Jesus through his birth. Pastor Stan Williams was with us last week, and he spoke about encountering Jesus through his word. And today, we're going to look at encountering Jesus through forgiveness. We're going to look at encountering Jesus through forgiveness. We are going to look at a passage of scripture that most people would not necessarily associate with the Christmas story, but I think it's one of the most powerful, powerful passages and how it relates to this, you'll understand in just a few moments. So we're talking about Christmas this morning, and I'm not asking for you to give um, an answer outside, but if you can just take a moment and you can think about this yourself, you don't have to say it verbally, but what does Christmas mean to us. And when I mean us, I don't just mean the church. I mean the world around us, the culture, the country that we live in. What does Christmas mean to people? It has a lot to do with who you're talking to. So for some people, Christmas, if you're a business right now, Christmas means sales, right? If you're a business right now, I mean, there's a reason why they used to call Black Friday, Black Friday, right? Because it was like the first day of the year that businesses actually went in the black and got out of the red. That's where that came from when they talked about that. And then they added Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and now they have, you know, give away your money from now to Christmas, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And that's what they're trying to do. Okay? Businesses associate Christmas with sales. Nonprofit organizations can associate the Christmas season with generous donations, one of the biggest time of the year when people give generously to organizations and groups. Children can associate Christmas with no school, right? Can we hear an amen? No school? Look at that. Right? Parents are like, woo. Okay. <laughs> Should. Presents, gifts, fun, toys. People associate, kids associate that. Families, maybe you associate Christmas with traditions or decorations or cookies. Anyone associate Christmas with Christmas cookies? Love Christmas cookies. Love, love, love Christmas cookies. Decorations, togetherness. Churches associate Christmas with decorations, services. Music, I don't think I've ever not associated a church around Christmas with, without candles. There's always candles connected in churches. Kids dressed up as shepherds, as wise men, as little animals, goats and sheeps and all that kind of stuff. That's what people associate Christmas with, right? And it's fun, isn't it? 
Isn't it fun? I mean, this Christmas Eve, we're going to have the Christmas Eve Eve services. We'll have our kids gather together, and there'll actually be, like, you know, an actual live nativity here. And what I mean by that is children dressed up like animals. Like, they'll be here, and they might moo and bad and do all the stuff that they're going to do. But it's fun to see all of that come together. It's part of the reason that we associate Christmas, or part of the things we associate with Christmas. Many have heard the message of Christmas, But what is the real message of Christmas? We know the answer to that. The real answer to Christmas or the message of Christmas, many of us know, is Emmanuel. That God is with us. But I really believe sometimes this doesn't connect with people in the church and outside the church. We talk about Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate Christmas. We go through our emotions and then we continue our lives. And many times people in the world are not changed. They have their experiences and their photos and they post everything on social media, what they experienced over the next 30 days. And then it just goes back to life as usual. And I wonder why. I think it has something to do with this. How people view God has a lot to do with how they view the church. Now, I'm not saying we're fully responsible because we live in a sinful world. But I really believe the reason why the message of Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't necessarily have the type of punch that we think it should, according to Scripture, in some ways, is because people view their version of God through their view of the church. What if we could strip away every preconceived idea of Christmas this morning and we could get back to the basics and recognize that we need to do what matters most and we need to focus on what matters most? The reason why I'm saying that is because there is a message that comes from the Christian church And that message can either be he is risen, like we say in Easter, or Jesus is born, like we say at Christmas. But is it followed up throughout the year with a life, priorities, the way that we love, the way that we live, the way that we give, the way that we walk through adversity? Are all of those things being a support of the things we celebrate during Christmas, during Easter, during special holidays? I believe that part of that is the answer. So, What is Christmas about? Is it about Jesus? Is it about Jesus? Yes, Yes, it is about Jesus. Good answer. But here's what I think Christmas is ultimately about. It's not just about Jesus. It's about God demonstrating his heart towards mankind. It's not about the birth of Jesus. It's about God demonstrating his heart towards you, towards me, towards the world around us. This is the beauty of Christmas, and this is what Christmas is all about. You see, knowing what God thinks of us or how God sees us has a huge impact on how we will respond to him. Do you really understand and know how God sees you this morning? Do you think people really understand and know how God sees them this morning? I think that that's something that many of us struggle with. And at different times, we might feel like we're, we're better at that than others. I don't mean other people. I mean other times. Maybe we feel sometimes that, yes, we're better at that and we have a better understanding of it. And then other times, we may really struggle with that. And that's our human nature. We struggle with different things like that. But understanding how God sees us makes a huge impact on the way we will respond to him and the way that the community and the world around us responds to him. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at a pretty familiar story that many people have heard before, and it specifically answers that question. How 
do you think God sees us? He answers this question in a beautiful parable and a beautiful story. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 15. And in chapter 15, there are three stories. The Bible calls them parables. He uses these three stories or these three parables that answers the question, how does God see us? And he does this in response to what happens in verses 1 and 2. So I want to read verses 1 and 2, set it up so that you understand what's happening and what Jesus is about to say, because we don't want to hear the stories without understanding why he tells the stories. And then we're going to talk about how this matters to us today. So in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we see this. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Luke 15, 1 and 2. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's just stop there for a moment. I'm going to read it one more time so you can just hear what's going on here. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See what's going on right now. Jesus, he was a pretty popular guy, wasn't he? If you know anything about him in the Gospels, he was a pretty popular guy. He met with all kinds of people. He was attractive to all kinds of people. And yet, when it came to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, there was a problem. In fact, they judged him because they noticed that in the process of him spending time with people, he spent more time with sinful people the derelicts, the outcasts, than he spent with the religious leaders, with the spiritual elite. He spent time, and their word was very direct. He spends time and welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Eating with them was an approval of that individual, maybe of not their lifestyle or maybe of the decisions that they make, but that you were, you were granting them a platform, that you were showing them that they had some level of value, and that's not how the spiritual elite saw these people. It's almost as if they were saying, if Jesus is such a good teacher and he's a rabbi, um, and that's all great, why is he hanging out with the losers of society? Why is he hanging out with the nobodies in society? Tax collectors? You know, tax collectors during this time were Jewish people that worked for the Roman government that took tax money from their own people and gave it to the Roman government. The problem was is that they could take as much money as they wanted to. There wasn't some set thing that they only gave a certain amount of money. They could adjust it and do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. They were kind of like modern-day Congress or old school Congress. They could just change the law whenever they wanted to, and then it would put money in their own pockets, and then they would move on and do what they wanted to do. The people that were Jewish people despised their Jewish taxpayers. They were betrayers. They were traitors of their own people, honoring the government and lining their own pockets in the process. So the people were upset about that. They were considered true sinners. But Jesus met with anybody. It didn't matter what their moral compass was. He met with people. He spoke to them. The outcasts would come to hear Jesus teach, and they would question this. And Jesus would say things like, I think it was in Luke 5, he said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for those that were elite and religious. I came to those that were far from God that didn't think they were amazing or great, but those that recognized that they really were far from God. These are the people that I came to. And he begins to paint a picture in response to this accusation in in Luke chapter 15. And he tells three stories that answers their question. 
whether it's a question or a comment. Why does this guy hang out with losers? Why does he hang out with outcasts? Why does he hang out with the unpure, unholy people? And in chapter 15, he tells three stories. The first one he tells briefly is a story of the lost sheep. It's a parable. It's a story. And in the, the situation of the lost sheep, he says there's, there's this shepherd and he had a hundred sheep. And at night he brings them all in and he counts his sheep and he recognizes that one is gone. So he leaves the 99 that are there and he goes back out to find the one that is lost. And it says when he finds the one, he calls his friends to celebrate because the one that was lost is now what? Found. Found. Saved. The one that was one in danger is now saved. And then he moves on and he tells a second story. In verse 8, 8 through 10, and it's about the lost coin. And he says there's a woman, and she has 10 silver coins, and she loses one of them in her house. She can't find it. So she lights a lamp, and she sweeps the house clean until she finds it. And when she finally founds it, finds it, she calls her friends again, and she says, celebrate with me, because the coin that was lost is now what? Found. Both of those stories speak to something of great value that was lost and is now found. So he tells two different stories in two different situations. And then he comes to the one we're going to talk about today that I think is really significant. He tells the story of the lost son. Some of you have heard this story, and you maybe understand it through the lens of the prodigal son. But he tells the story of the lost son, and we're going to read that together beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Do you hear what's going on here? See how this is going? The son, his decisions walking away from the father, living his own lavish lifestyle, coming to his senses when he's at the end of his rope, that he's going to go back and humbly repent and tell his father he wants to be a servant because he's not worthy to be called a son. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of the lost son. The story of the prodigal son is a familiar story to many people. The wayward kid that abandons his family, that abandons his father, goes into a place to live his own life lavishly, does everything that he wants to do in his own understanding, fill himself with every, every pleasure he could fill, comes to his senses when it's all squandered, decides to go back to a father humbly to be a servant, and yet the father welcomes him with loving, compassionate, open arms puts a beautiful robe on him, kills the fattened calf, has a celebration and a party because his son is back. Meanwhile, his faithful son that's been with him all the time gets wind of this, hears what's going on, and gets really, really upset. I wonder how many of us could say, I resonate with that other son. I've been faithful to you all this time, and yet he gets so upset with it, he refuses to participate in the celebration. The father comes to him and he explains the situation and he says, this is why we're having the celebration because one who was lost is now found. One who was dead is now alive. Have you ever lost something of tremendous value? Think about it. Have you ever lost something of significant value? It doesn't mean it's valuable based on the world standards. It might be. It might be something of great value. Maybe, maybe over the last year, you've looked at your retirement and said, I've lost something of significant value. <laughs> right? As things take off and they plunge and there's up and there's green and there's red 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 and there's green and there's red and there's red and there's red and there's red. And some of us are going, oh no, what are we going to do? I've lost something of great value. And that can be unnerving for some people. Maybe it's not monetary. I mean, years ago, some of you have heard that story. My wife and I looking for a job right out of college. And, you know, we stopped two hours from the college on the way home in the middle of the night. And she loses her wallet because she left it on the roof before we got back in the car. And we drove two hours away. And all of her stuff was in that wallet. And we turned around and went back. And we, thank God, found it. But if you've ever lost your wallet with all of your ID and everything in that, that's not monetarily as valuable. But it is significantly valuable Especially if you've got to go back to all those government agencies and get it all redone. That takes a lot of time. Huge amount of things can be valuable. Have you lost something of significant value? The father has lost something in this story of significant, significant value. What's the point of this parable? I want to take a moment and I want to just suggest that this really isn't about the son. It's not really about the lost son. It's really a parable that if you're willing to take a step back, you can see three different perspectives on what's going on here. And if you're willing to step back and listen and observe each one of these perspectives, what you will find is that sometimes you may be 
the younger son. Sometimes you may act like the older son. And sometimes you may have the heart of the loving father. I want to look at all three of them briefly this morning. And I want to talk about why they're all significant and how they ultimately all have to rely and point back to the ultimate value of the loving father. So this morning, we're going to look through the eyes of each one of those. And I want you to look at what the problem was. I'm going to read the scriptures that illustrate it. And then I want to ask you some questions to think about whether that has ever applied to you. So if we look at the parables through the eyes of the younger son from verses 11 through 21, we see that his problem was that he valued his pleasure more than the love of his father. He valued his pleasure, his selfishness and his pleasure more than the love of the father. It says, beginning in verse 12, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. The father had 100% of his estate. The older son would get a double portion, so it's basically a two-thirds and a one-third split. The younger son gets one-third from what the father has, but that only was divvied up typically when the father would die. So by the son asking the father for his estate and his part of the inheritance, what he was basically saying to his dad was, I, I, I don't care if you were dead. I'd rather you be dead so I could get your stuff and go live my own life. Doesn't that feel good? Right? If you have children and any of those kids ever came to you, how would you feel? Don't answer. But how would that feel in your heart? Especially if you know if you've been saving and you've been building some type of a inheritance for your children. If they said, you know, Dad, we know that you're still here, but you know, you can I just have it now? And he said, well, well I, I might need that. Well, yeah, maybe not. Can I just have it now? Can you imagine how hurtful that would be to a parent to say, I'd rather have your stuff than have you. Think about how significant that is because the son was more interested in his pleasure. The son was more interested in his way over the father's way. That's called sin. He wished his father dead. The story of the younger son is the story of a heart who decides to live this life without God. At some point, people say in their life, I would rather choose my way than God's way. I would rather choose to do the things I want to do than the things God wants to do. And now we can reserve that phrase or that situation for people if we want that don't have a relationship with Jesus at all and say the world has chosen their way over God's way. And there's a truth to that. The people have chosen their way over God's way, but it also applies to members and people within the church who are followers of Jesus. There are times in our lives each and every day that we have to ask ourselves, who are we living for today? Who do we prefer to be in relationship with? Are we choosing to have the love of our father and walk according to his plan for our lives? Or are we choosing our own path today? Do you realize you could be the prodigal son today? or tomorrow, or the next day, even if you've made a decision to follow Christ and you became a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean your salvation's gone. The son was always still the son. But whether or not you've ever chosen to follow Christ, this story applies to any one of us because each and every day of our lives, we have to ask ourselves, who do we build our life on? What foundation do we build our life on? Knowing and experiencing and walking in the love of God or on our own selfishness, on our own pleasures, on our own abilities, on our own excitement and adventure. 
There's a whole world out there right now that is telling us the best life you can live is to be completely self-centered and go do whatever you want. You know, the statistics have been showing this more and more over the years. And I'm convinced of this. I'm absolutely convinced of this. But it's a harder thing this day for the younger generation of kids that are growing up to settle into things that they really can just be about and do. They're having a harder time figuring out where they want to go, what they want to do, how they want to get planted. And here's what I think is at the root of that. I think foundationally at the root of that is too many choices too many options, too many things. And they live in an electronic world where everyone is telling them the best thing you could do is do whatever you want to do for yourself. And you can make money doing it because people want to watch you do stupid stuff. (laughs) And you can monetize it. And you can, you know what, today we're going to this store and that's worth a couple thousand dollars. And people watch it. And they do that, and they go, you know what? I, I really want to be this, this, this internet sensation so that I can do X, Y, and Z. And am I saying it's bad if that's who you are? Of course not. I'm saying the message that's being communicated to the world around us, though, is that live for yourself. Do whatever you want. Life is an adventure. You only have one, day, one life to live. Make everything about yourself. Where is God in the midst of all of that, church? It's like a message to encourage prodigal living. Where is the message of God's love in the midst of all of that? That we say, what foundation are we building on? The son is saying, I want it my way. I don't want it God's way. And I want to live this way as much as I can. Ultimately, this pathway leads to disappointment in this story. And can I tell you, scripture is very clear. There is a way that seems right unto man, scripture says, but ultimately it leads us to what? Death, the scripture says. The only place that sustains us is to be close to God in relationship with God. So the younger son valued his pleasure more than the love of his father. I ask you this morning, do you value your pleasure and your preferences more than the love of your father, your heavenly father? Do you value your comfort more than the love of your father? Do you value your adventure more than the love of your father? You know, please hear me when I'm saying God is a good God and he gives beautiful gifts to those who love him. This is not a call to poverty or to do anything like that. Those are extremes and we live in a world that talks about extremes. God is not about that. He's given us the world to enjoy. He called us to go and be fruitful and to multiply and to rule over the earth. All those things are part of a good God giving good gifts to his people. But at the center of who we need to be, has to begin with being in relationship with God and experiencing his love. You understand what I'm saying? It's a big difference. And we can see it when we watch what other people do with their lives. They have no time for God. They have no time for relationship with the church. They have no time for building community with other people and Christians. They have no time because everything is filled. They have no ability to bless others because they're always spending six bucks and seven bucks on drinks they can't afford. Like, fill it in. Whatever you want to do, wherever we spend our money, whatever we spend our calendar time, whatever we do, is it foundationally based on knowing God first so that everything we do overflows from that? The younger son valued his pleasure more than the love of his father. And that is a question that each one of us can ask ourselves this morning in this story. Are we like the younger son? And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I've been that way different times, but right now I'm okay. Okay, well, let me ask you the question. Are you like the older son? Because the older son didn't value pleasure more than the love of the father. The older son, at first glance, seemed to be the good son. But here's what his problem was. He valued his service more than the love of the father. The older son valued his service 
more than the love of the Father. Let me read this for you in Luke 15, 29 through 30. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I could summarize the older son's position in three words. It's not fair. Right? It's not fair. Have you ever heard someone tell you those words? Have you ever? (laughs) I think I just heard someone say every day. Well, talk to your spouse about it later. (laughs) Every day. Have you ever said those words yourself? Have you ever thought those words? It isn't fair. It isn't fair. And what he's looking at, see, so often we can look at the story and go, the the younger son, he was the bum. The older son, he was faithful. Oh, he was faithful. But look what happens when the younger son comes home. He says, it isn't fair, dad. I have faithfully served you all of my years, slaving for you, slaving for you. And yet this is how I'm rewarded. You never even gave me a goat. You never even gave me a small animal. Yet you kill the fattened calf for your wayward son that wished you dead. This is not fair. Tim Keller said this about the elder brother. He said, The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. The elder brother. Let me say it again. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. The separation that existed between the older son and the father isn't because he wasn't good. It's because he thought his goodness qualified him between him and his God, between him and his dad. Like his goodness and his actions and his service justified a better response from his father. Like God owed him, if you will, or the father owed him. Does that make sense? I've been faithful to you all this time. You owe me. Why would you do that for him and you wouldn't do that for me? Don't you see all the work I've done? Don't you see all the faithfulness I've provided to you? All the things I have done for you, Father? You owe me. This is a tough one. This is a tough one for me. The son wasn't interested in the father's happiness. Think about that. He wasn't interested in what the father believed and what he was happy about. He was interested in his own situation. And the father tells him, son, you're missing the point. The whole point of this, I see your faithfulness, he says. He goes, everything I have belongs to you. Two-thirds of it's left. It all belongs to you. But it's a greater joy to see the dead brought to life. It's a greater joy to see the the dead brought to life than to see the living continue to live. Think about that. If we were in a funeral, and we were sitting here, and there was a casket, and we were all talking with each other, and we were talking about whatever we talk about at wakes and viewings, and the dead person just gets out of the casket. Aside from freaking out everybody in the room, (laughs) right? Which is going to happen. What are we going to celebrate more in that moment? 
The fact that I got a good job or I got a cool deal on a car or, or this person really looks good or look what I got on this clothes. Or they're going to say, they were dead and now they're made alive. All eyes are going to go to the dead person that's now alive. Am I right? And we're going to say, oh my goodness, Lord, what is this? Let's celebrate the fact that the dead person was made alive. Let me ask you even this. What if the person was dead because they did something that was sinful? What if they were dead because they overdosed on something that they shouldn't have done? What if they were dead because they caused grief in some way and they actually, their death was a direct result of their stupidity and their behavior? If they came to life in that moment, would we look at them and go, what the heck, you should be dead. You should be dead. You were dumb. Go back in the casket. Would we ever say that? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Would we ever do that? Of course not. We would say, You were dead and now you're alive. God be praised. You were dead and now you're made alive. What the father's trying to teach his son here is it is not your works. It is not your effort. It is not all that stuff. It doesn't obligate me to give you preferential treatment. Do you understand? I love you. Do you understand? Everything I have belongs to you. Do you understand? I'm never going to see you differently in that. But do you understand your brother was dead and now he is alive? Do you understand the significance of the dead being made alive or the lost being found. I'm sharing this with you this morning because this applies to the religious people. And that may apply to us this morning in our church. How do we consider or how do we consider how we value our faithfulness to God over the desire to see spiritually dead people raised to life? Do we spend our time looking at the things that we do in the church, for the church, in ministry, serving. And, and, and all those things are good. God's called us. It's our works that don't save us, but it is our works that are evidence of our faith. But have we established an expectation in our lives that, Lord, I serve every other week at Bridge. I give. I teach. I do things outside. I did boxes of love for the last 10 years, Lord. You owe me. Meanwhile, God might be looking at us saying, are you more impressed with the works that you've done for me through my church, but you really don't care about the person down the road that's dying for eternity? You see, I've gone through a series, a session for, I mean, a season for a while. In the past, I've walked through this and the Lord's asked me some hard questions at different times over the last number of years where I've loved music and I've loved worship ministry and I've loved being a part of that over the years at different times. And and there's been times where I've just had to take it and I've had to just put it away and just not be a part of it. And it's because in the midst of those times, the Lord asked me questions. I hate it when God asks me questions. Because he's always trying to get to my heart about something. I'm like, just don't ask me questions. Give me answers. So he asked me questions. And the question that I would hear often for a period of time was, do you love me more than you love music? Do you love me more than you love being on a worship team? Do you love me? And would you serve me? Not out of obligation, not out of a role or a position or a title, but if all of that was stripped away, what would your life look like, Paul? What would it look like? So I packed my guitar up for a long time. I didn't do anything with it. Because I couldn't answer that question in a way that I knew that God wanted me to answer it. Because I thought, wow, my my problem is not 
music. My problem is the way I see God. And, and even if I can take it to the next step, are you so willing to sing praises to me and you know, jot down little words and encourage people, but you really don't give a darn about the person down the road who doesn't know me? You're too busy to share the gospel with them. You get more angry with them about a way they may have hurt you or wounded you instead of recognizing the fact that they're dead and you're alive. You hear where I'm going with this? Right to the heart, man. Like, I want to sit down. I'm just trying to be honest and real with you this morning a little bit, guys. This week I had a, a situation where I um, had an encounter with somebody and they did something that was very hurtful to me. Um, don't worry, they're not part of our church. You don't have to wonder who it is or anything like that. It's completely outside the church. I'll post about it later by name on social media if you want me to. <laughs> just kidding. But they justified their actions because they were attacking the church. And they said, this is who the church is. This is who the church is about. This is what you do. This is what it is. And it was very, very aggressive. And it was very like, this is what I'm going to do. And and you have no reason to question the fact that I was going to hurt you or I'm hurting you. It was like everything in me wanted just to raise up and go, if I could see you face to face right now, we would have a beautiful conversation with our hands. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? And in the beginning, I wanted to do that. And then something switched in me. And just for a moment, I realized this person's lost. This person doesn't know who God is. This person doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. You could say, how do you know that? Trust me, I knew this 100%. They do not have a relationship with Jesus. And I used it as an opportunity to have a lengthy conversation with them over the phone about who Jesus really is, about what the gospel really means. Invited them to continue the conversation with me, almost begging them to say, give me the opportunity to continue to talk about this with you. Instead of you having a judgmental attitude towards me and Christianity and saying all these things about what you believe, let me talk to you about who Jesus really is. Do you know why I did that? I didn't do it because afterwards I went up to God and knocked and said, hey, hey, you owe me. You, I had a conversation, pay up. I didn't do it that. You know what? Because in the midst of that, I was upset and I was angry and something switched in me and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, don't see them as someone who's hurting you or the church, see them as someone who is dead, who needs to be raised to life. You with me? You can be the younger son and go your own way and pursue pleasure and miss the love of the father. You can also be the older son, valuing your service and your works over the love of the father. Not just the father's love towards you, but the father's love towards others through you. We can be either one of those or... Or we can be the loving father. We can understand the heart of the father and be like the loving father. In verse 31, what did he say? He said, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father demonstrated how valuable both sons were to him, regardless of their shortcomings. You notice that? He loved them both, and he demonstrated his love to both of them. To the younger son, he gave him what he wanted, even though he knew it could destroy him. You know what I get from that? God does not force himself on anyone. He doesn't. What about this person that's known about Jesus for so many years, Paul, and I've talked to them about it? Isn't God drawing them, or why aren't they making a decision? Can I tell you? That has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with their heart. 
God speaks over and over and over again. He gives us opportunities to hear the word, to hear the truth, to hear it through people over and over and over again. The question that I have in the midst of that is, are we responding to him? The father does not pull us towards him with an insatiable resistance where he says, you're going to love me whether you like it or not. I've heard people say when you go back to the fall in Adam and Eve, why would God even give them the ability and the, the ability to choose between good and evil if he knew they were going to choose evil? And my question would be, how do you know somebody really loves you unless you give them the option not to? How do you know your spouse really loves you if you chain them to, to the bed or you chain them to the doorknob or you chain them to the kitchen and say, you cannot leave this house ever and the doors are locked every time you go out? Do you think they really love you? <laughs> You have to give them freedom. You have to let them go. I can't even believe I use an illustration about chaining your spouse to anything. (laughs) Good Lord. I say some stupid stuff. There are some of you here that have a book. I know that. You've told me about the dumb things I've said over the years. But you know what I'm trying to say. The way that you know someone loves you is by giving the freedom not to. The way that God approaches us is that he loves us vigorously and passionately. But he gives us the option not to. With the son who was younger, he let him do what he wanted to do because he wasn't going to force himself on him. He doesn't make us love him. But he waited for him to come home. And you know what I love about the story? It says when he saw his son from a distance, he went to him. You know what that reminds me of? And it tells me that he was always looking for him because he could, I could envision him getting up each day and looking. And waiting to see, do I see him on the horizon? Do I see him? That's the heart of a dad that says he's dead and he needs to be made alive again. And I can't force him to come to me. But when he starts coming in my direction, I'm going to run to him. I'm going to run to him. Because even though he ran far from his dad, he always remained his son. In dad's eyes, he was always his son. Even when the son said, I'm not worried that he'd be called your son. The father puts his hands around him. And he embraces him and he says, you're always my son. And now you're alive again when you were dead. And then to the older son, he recognizes faithfulness and he graciously remind him of his worth. And he also challenged the older son to consider which was greater. What was greater to him of greater value? The lost one who became found always brings a greater celebration in the kingdom of heaven than anything we do as children of God. We need to remember that. Why? Because we're already made alive. He loves us. He walks with us. But when the dead become alive, there is a celebration in heaven because those who are forever destined to be without God are now going to have an eternity with him. You with me? This is the story of the prodigal son and the older son and the message to us about the father. Our worship team are going to come today and we're going to close And it's a message to us today to consider. And can I ask you, like I said before, which one are you? Have you found yourself in your walk in different places at different times? If you're like the younger son this morning and you have no relationship with God, maybe you have actually said, I don't need God. I'm not in a relationship with God. I've been living my own life. This all Jesus community Christian thing is kind of new to me and I don't really know. Or I've been resisting it for a long time. Can I tell you this morning? The Father is looking for you. 
The Father is waiting for you. The Father wants you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to let go of the pleasures that you think will determine happiness in your life and move back to building your life on a different foundation, a foundation that begins and ends with Jesus Christ. If you're already a follower of Christ, maybe you're at a place this morning where you have taken steps away. That maybe you have chosen your path in certain ways instead of God's way. It doesn't mean that you're not still in relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean that you're still not trying to walk your spiritual journey out. Journey out. Sometimes people use the term backslidden. I don't even like putting terms and boxes on these things. But maybe you're at a place where you know where you are is not necessarily as close as you need to be to Jesus. Can I remind you this morning, in the same way he looks for those that are completely dead, for those that have chosen their way, over God's way, God welcomes us back in when we come to him with a heart of repentance. The son came to him and acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged his separation and his selfishness. And the father wipes away all of that offense because he is a God who walks through the power of forgiveness. So maybe one of those are you this morning, or maybe you're like the older son where you are faithful and you're walking and you're in a relationship with God, but maybe just in the midst of things, you've crossed that line a few times thinking because you do things for God, he views you better. He views you more faithful. He views you as more loved or maybe with more favor. Be careful in those things because he may love you and he may give you favor, but all of those things he gives you is for the purpose of you having a deep relationship with him so that you can share it with others. It's not just to keep for yourself or for myself. It's to share it with others. The older son recognized his faithfulness. The father recognized the older son's faithfulness and reminded him of his worth. Jesus will remind you of your faithfulness, but he will also remind you of your worth. But then he will take your eyes off of what you do and he will remind you of those who are far from God. And maybe that's where you are this morning as well. Can I tell you, there are two, there are two most, the two most common times every year that people will make a decision to attend a Christian church are on Christmas and Easter. And I want to encourage you as we get ready to transition and the team sings a song and encourage you to, you can sing along or you can bow your heads and you can just worship and let him speak to you. Who do you know today that is far from God? Who do you know that is lost and needs to be found? Who do you know that needs to see God the way he sees us? And if the Holy Spirit's putting names to your mind, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You see, if we have those names, if we have those people that we know and we never take a step towards them and we never invite them, we never talk to them about Jesus, we never invite them to come to a church service, we're just like the older son. We're doing what we're doing for God, but the rest of them can go to hell. It sounds harsh, but honestly, in the truth of our hearts, that's, that's truth. That's the honest to God truth. We're doing what we're doing as a body, but the rest of them, who cares? Can I remind you this morning? If God's putting people on your heart, it's not just so, you know, you can ask the pastors of the church to call someone and invite them to church. In fact, that would be really creepy and weird. If you know them, be the hands and feet of Jesus. 
If you know someone's hurting, go pray with them. If you know that somebody is struggling, be a word of encouragement to them. Help people experience life, whether they're far, far from God and lost, or they've just gotten on a wayward path. God wants each one of us to be his hands and feet so that we can show the love of God to others and they can experience Jesus this Christmas through forgiveness. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I just come before you this morning and as our team leads us in this song, may our hearts and our minds just be focused on the love of Christ, the love of the Father, and the transforming power you give us through the message of forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray.